Hey there, and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Hunter Cates. Hey, Chris. Yeah? I don't know about you, but I'm already feeling kind of nostalgic for 2015. Yeah, we were so young and naive, starting a podcast, reviewing all those movies. It was a simpler time. Sounds like you've got a pretty bad case of nostalgia yourself, Chris. Oh, no! Is there anything we can do about it? Say, I've got an idea. I've watched a lot of TV in my life, and what they usually do in this situation is do a year-end wrap-up show. Why don't we do that with our favorite films and discoveries of last year? Ooh, and then we can give away some superfluous awards. Oh boy, that sounds like a cure for sure. Then we can focus on the year to come with our 2016 New Year's resolutions. Hot dog! And finally, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... So, Chris, Christmas has come and gone, and as we discussed in prior episodes, it really is all about the gifts. So I'm curious, did you get that Knight Rider cell phone charger that you so wanted from Santa? I believe that was on your list, Hunter. I thought it was a, it was kind of a mutual thing. I, I mean, I, I'm not going to, like, if it showed up in my stocking, it, I wasn't going to, like, return it. Yeah, I wasn't going to say, it's not like a lump of coal. Uh, I, I did get a couple things on my list, actually. Probably the most surprising one that I was... I absolutely did not expect was actually that Hayao Miyazaki uh, box set. Really? Yeah. Uh, which I I have not had the chance to dive into yet, but I'm really excited about. And this wasn't a Walmart $5 bin version of no, it? No. This, the, is, the real this deal? is the real deal. The uh, the Studio Ghibli, you know, Disney release. Well, that it, no, that's, that is extremely exciting. And I actually walked in uh, here and noticed that your coffee table is pretty blank. Did you not get any of those coffee table books you so pine <laughs> actually, for? Actually, if you look behind you, there's this giant box behind you. That says building stories on it. That's, I, I don't know, it's maybe a couple feet high and it's almost the anti coffee table book. This is a graphic novel by uh, Chicago artist, Chris Ware. That is, I think it's 14 articles. So it's, there's some books, some newspapers, some just like accordion strips that you read in any order to kind of gather this, this story. And I've, uh, I haven't gone through the whole thing yet. I've gone through quite a bit of it. It's, really great really fascinating i like it's one of those things that you almost can't put on a coffee table though it's so it would break the coffee yeah, table it's, it's and so actually, big and cumbersome well and here the thing is is that i the reason i did notice that at first is because i didn't see the coffee table there's actually uh-huh. so many coffee table books there that there's not even a coffee table right so anything else uh, that you got from santa that you'd like to brag about here um let, let's focus on you what did you get did you get those eggs or uh... uh i did not get the eggs actually i got something that just made me giddy as all get out it was a sega genesis and go, go on. And yes, I got a and I, I have a Sega Genesis. Mine was still around, but I think it's collected so much dust that it probably sputtered out. But what this, all you got to do is blow in it. Yeah, exactly. That's that's how you fix everything. But anyway, it's uh, I think it was about 40, 50 bucks. And from what I understood from the person who got it from me, it was at Bed Bath and Beyond. Believe it or not. <laughs> Wait, is this is it just Sega Genesis or is it one of those that will play multiple different platforms? Well, there's I got a Sega Genesis and then an Atari and they were separate. OK. And they were separate machines. But anyway, the Sega has 80 games built in, including such classics as Echo, Vector Man, all three Sonics, excuse me, four Sonics. Three Mortal Kombat's. Okay, I have I have a couple questions. Uh-huh. I, I I'm sorry to just, just cut a couple, you off, but one, can you put cartridges in it as yes, well? Yes, you can still put cartridges in it. Okay, so it's got preloaded stuff, mm-hmm. but then if it's not, absolutely. Two, is this in any way legal? Uh, I, I, is probably it? almost certainly illegal, but it's from Santa, so he can do what he wants. <laughs> Santa shops at Bed Bath Beyond, exactly. But um, 
it really kind of reminds me of just how many terrible games were made for those original mm-hmm. platforms because there's this one game that's pre-built on there called curling 2010 Ooh. so whenever this yeah exactly Wait, so this is a new game well or this is a game well here's the thing is whenever it came out you can tell that clearly they you know 2010 was so far off in the distance okay. so i think it's like a post-apocalyptic curling situation <laughs> the game is about uh america has fallen to nuclear winter nuclear war has finally destroyed us and all that is left is curling so it's like a uh, roll or ball or something, I, but with curling. I think what really happened is somebody made a curling game. It was pretty bad, and somebody was like, we can't sell this. What if we set it in the future in a post-apocalyptic world and call it Curling 2010? I mean, it worked for me. It's, it's. I guess it's, yeah, the Mad Max of, uh, of <laughs> Olympic sports that no one really understands. Well, hot damn, I can't wait till Curling 2020. Yeah, Curling 2020, but it just seems so far away. It does. Um, but so I, I really enjoyed that. It reminded me, I don't know if you ever had this or knew about it. Uh, did you have a Sega channel growing up? I did not. I didn't have a Genesis. I, I was a Super Nintendo guy. Okay. Uh, but I had a neighbor that had Sega channel and we played it constantly. Well, for those of you who don't know, what Sega channel was is you have your Sega Genesis, then you plug in a cartridge that plugs into the, your cable outlet in the wall. And once a month, you get 50 new games, or excuse me, every month you get 50 new games. And I don't, I don't really think that a better invention has come before or since. No, it, it was one of those things when it disappeared because our, you know, cable provider just decided. I don't know if it just went up. Belly but up I think what happened or, is they focused on digital cable. It was Sega okay. Channel, and then they decided we're going to do digital cable. Uh, which, instead. in hindsight, is probably the better. The, I the longevity wise, it's probably a better. I mean, move. better for them, but not for us, not uh, for the rest of society. But the the thing about Sega Channel that I always loved and hated was at the. You know, at the beginning of the month, you got all the new games, but then also some of the games that you loved and had been playing all month were now gone. And so it was like, particularly like, you know, a few months in, like when one, a game that you loved would come back, it was like a celebration of like, okay, all we, all we're going to play, there's all these new games, but all we're going to play is this old one. Yeah. And it was always in February whenever you have less time to play it anyway. But, um, what I'm about to say is potentially controversial. Having played these games, you know, a little bit over the past week, the the nostalgia wears off about three minutes in because <laughs> you, you play some of these things. And like I said, they were just absolutely terrible. But at the time, it's, you know, cutting edge and then you're doing it and then. Well, all I'm doing is just going side to side and beating up zombies. There's well, nothing there, really. There's n- nothing new happening. There's here. something about that though that there. I think the really good old games are they're very hard. You die a lot, and there's a lot of repetition. But it's like this almost. You have to learn the exact pattern of how to get through and beat a level. And, and so, like that. That was the thing that even you know going back and playing emulators in like college or whatever. That was the thing that would sort of differentiate just a boring game where it's just like random crap where it, it seems like nothing is you know mm-hmm. planned out, and then uh, something that's really good and addictive where it's like you can somehow figure out how to master it. It's just really difficult, right? So the Genesis was you know the the peak gift. I also got a Godzilla piggy bank. And some okay, shivas. so that that fall. Oh well, you you said your girlfriend was going to get it for you. So yeah, she, well, well. Here's the thing, though. She couldn't get the really cool one. It was just. I mean, it's fine. Don't get me wrong. She, the one is I she got. Aware that she didn't. No, get no. The cool she's one? no. She said as much. But the one I have now, it's just you know plastic piggy bank. And so he's now guarding the bottle of shivas that I got. Okay. So on my fridge, Godzilla's guarding my shivas. <laughs> Who gave you shivas? I've actually been gathering it for the past couple of years. Okay, just because? It, it yeah, pretty much any special occasion, that's what people get me. Okay. I guess they're trying to tell me something. All right. 
That's all right. I need to class it up a bit. Okay. Well, is there anything else that, uh, um, as got? far as that I got, no, but I was very, very proud of this gift as a gift giver. I got my niece a lightsaber. Nice. From, yeah, from Target. And I, from what I understand, that was the one that she, the gift she liked the most. Here's the thing about getting gifts for a little girl is if you're going to be lazy about it, then just go get frozen stuff and and you'll be fine but the thing is is it'll be gone in a couple of months they'll still be into frozen but they've just got so much frozen stuff coming at them that you know it, it, it ends up in the pile of frozen stuff pretty much yes it just a ever-expanding pile of frozen crap so what so what i try and get her is things that are that i would like but aren't just you know uh-huh. batman dolls so she cut her like, hand off yet not yet. No, okay. it's a plastic one. She um, she hasn't cut anyone's hands off. The thing about lightsabers at Target, at least, is they're either really cheap or really expensive. Yeah. And so I didn't want to run the risk of her saying, this is terrible. Why did you get me this? So you went really expensive? Oh, no, I went really cheap. Oh, okay. It was actually probably the ones oh, that I we see. had growing up where you throw it out. Right. And then it... <laughs> One of That's, those old. I mean, and it, for your first lightsaber, that should be your first lightsaber. You should, yeah, she, you should learn on that lightsaber yeah, before. Yeah. It's a trainer, trainer yeah, saber. exactly. I might, I might actually go back and get the more expensive one of my own since I'm a more experienced uh-huh. uh, uh, nerd. <laughs> or, I mean, people listening out there, if you're buying a Hunter Chivas, uh, maybe, maybe a lightsaber, maybe spring for that next time. Actually, at this point, I've got too much already, so we we might wait on that. However, we want to know what you got nerd wise can it compete with my genesis or chris's studio ghibli set let us know at hello at war starts at midnight.com we'll be back after the break to count down our top five films of the year discoveries and some superfluous awards stay tuned So, Hunter, being a movie podcast, we have to do what every movie podcast does at the end of the year. Which is, of course, talk aimlessly about nothing for the first 40 minutes before we even get to the review. Well, that's every day. Um, Every year at the end, you know, there's a wrap up of favorite films of the year, basically like talking about things that we've probably already talked about before. Right. Once again, folks, this is a wrap up episode. This is kind of like the flashback of TV episodes. It's the flashback bottle episode is what this is. We're not taking you to any, any, anywhere new. We're not, we're not reviewing a film. We're going to mostly talk about probably things that we've, We've already hit on, but in uh, fact, what you should do, audience, is if you have a bottle of Chivas right next to you, take a shot every time Chris and or I say, "Remember that time when," and oh, then great. we and then we do the flashback. So, yeah, what we're going to do is instead of doing a top ten, we're going to do a top five list, and then we're going to do talk about discoveries because a good a big part of what War Starts at Midnight is about is not just new releases, but things that we've you know sort of missed or overlooked or um, 
you know, somehow not seen that, you know, we do the war crimes reviews once every couple months or so. And um, so we're going to do that. And then we'll wrap up with just some fun awards because you got to have a, a year end award wrap up. Absolutely. So starting off, Hunter, your top five list. What is your number five movie of 2015? Um, Actually, Chris, mine isn't so much ranked because I think they all have different uh, attributes as is. So it's not going to be, this is the fifth best picture of mm-hmm. the year. And we should also, I, I have a question for you. Hunter. Mm-hmm. When you have children, are they going to go to a school where they get like carrots instead of uh, grades? <laughs> Whenever. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to send my kids to one of those mantra schools. Cause the, the whole rules thing yeah. and A's and B's. I, I, got, just I got three starfish today. And yeah, and exactly. And then he'll be living with me forever. So we should probably preface this by saying listeners that we have not seen the hateful eight or the revenant or Spotlight or Carol at the time of this recording. I, I've seen Spotlight. Oh, yeah, no, seen that's, Spotlight. That's, that's true. Like, there are a lot of... I mean, here's the thing. We live in Oklahoma. Like, Hateful Eight just came out. I'm going to see it this afternoon. The Revenant is not out yet at time of recording. Carol has not come to Oklahoma at time of recording. Um, Anomalisa has not come to Oklahoma at time of recording. So, we're, we're in a place where... Uh, you know, this is a, I, I actually, you know, I do on Letterboxd a top 10 list of the year every year. I'll probably update mine, you know, along the way. So this might actually be a completely different top five than you on see. On the flip side, later. though, what's interesting is just based on Rotten Tomatoes and just the general, general critical consensus is it kind of looks like the so quote unquote shoe wins aren't, ne- aren't necessarily as good as the, uh, what one might call the mainstream blockbusters, which is kind of a funny yeah, but but I think I mean Carol's gotten a lot of a lot of uh, critical praise. So is Anomalisa. Mm-hmm. Um, those those more than maybe say like it, it seems like the Revenant and and Hateful Eight are more just like fun movies. Yeah, you know what you're going to get, so to speak. So anyway, we are doing what podcasts do and speaking about nothing for the first forty minutes. But here we go. Finally, you're like welcome. I said, they are not ranked at all. I'm going to go ahead and start with the most obvious one. Uh, Jurassic World, I really, really appreciated it. it there's, really? I yeah. haven't heard anything about this. I, yeah, okay. Well, remember that time when. Uh-huh. But the thing about Jurassic World is there are so many ways it could have gone wrong. And I think that's what you have to appreciate about it is they could have very easily turned this into either a Jurassic Park 3, wherever it's just very ambitious and mediocre, or on the flip side, like a Transformers film, wherever it's just wall-to-wall mayhem and chaos. Mm-hmm. This was a picture by people who enjoyed the franchise for people who enjoyed the franchise is it does it belong on the oscar 10 best list does it belong on critics choice no it doesn't but for a person who appreciated the franchise and appreciates the subject matter it's everything you could have wanted so while it may be lacking as a movie in many ways as a cultural experience i think that i had as much fun watching that picture as any this year or any in a long time frankly okay well that's actually a a great surprise i wasn't expecting uh to hear about that movie at all i i I almost forgot that uh that it came out when was that way back in like june uh yeah something like that june of 2015 you know it's funny 2015 seems like it was just a few days ago (laughs) okay well uh, you don't have a structure at all. Of course, I do have a structure mm-hmm. to my list, which is exactly how these things typically go. So at my number five point, I have Brooklyn, um, which is a movie that I saw the trailer for this. Uh, I don't know, maybe back in like August or September and was like, that movie looks terrible. You know, it said, you know, coming November, December, whatever. I was like, oh, this is just like period piece Oscar bait. This movie is great. Have you, have you seen Brooklyn? Well, no. Here's the thing about it is I keep on hearing about Brooklyn or rather reading about Brooklyn. I've seen a trailer. I know nothing about it. The the trailer the trailer is awful. Like it it makes it seem like it's just this 
this period drama love story sort of thing, you know, paint by numbers, very predictable, you know, end of the year Oscar bait business. Um, I think it and and it, you know, it's playing in everything that you would expect it to be, but it just transcends all of that. I think partially because uh, it, the screenplay was written by Nick Hornby. Um, author and and screenwriter, and there's just there's so much great dialogue in this. Irish, from the look of you, you have greasy skin. Is that right? What do you do about that? Just well, I wash it, Mrs. Q, with soap. There's nothing wrong with soap. Soap was good enough for our Lord, I expect. Oh, and which brand did he use, Miss McAdam? Does the Bible tell you that? Now, our Lord was a man anyway. He didn't care about greasy skin. <laughs> Ladies, no more talk about our Lord's complexion at dinner, please. The girls will help you find something suitable, ladies, won't you, girls? Mm-hmm. It's just fun to sit and listen to these characters interact and, and speak with each other. It's a very lively sort of film. And then ultimately, like, I think if I was to, you know, do do a top five list of like movies that gave me the feels, this this probably is even higher than anything Pixar put out this year. Um, it, so it, it gave you, really, it gave you the feels more so than T-Rex versus Indominus Rex. Because that was just, that, that was just bursting through the flesh of the feels. Dif- different feels, very different yeah, feels, very I different think. Feels, but, yeah. uh, no, I really liked it. Saoirse Ronan is marvelous. I mean, she really carries this movie. She is a, basically she is an Irish immigrant who comes to America in the early fifties and, uh, basically looking for, leaves her family back in Ireland, uh, looking for a better life. And, uh, you know, initially she's homesick. She hates it. She meets this nice young Italian boy. They fall in love. And then uh, there's a family tragedy and she has to go back to Ireland. And just when everything starts working well. And then there's this sort of um, it's difficult for her to try to decide whether or not she wants to go back to America. That's the basic the basic plot. And it's just it's so it's so good in so many ways that it really shouldn't be. And that that was I mean, more than anything, it was a surprise for me, but it's just a it's a really solid movie. It would be a great date movie. All right. Fantastic. And yeah, like I said, I, I've only ever heard, seen, you know, Brooklyn. I didn't really know what well, it was if, about. Well, if yeah. you haven't seen the trailer, I would say don't. Just avoid the it's trailer. It's really bad. So, so what do you have at your just ambiguous number four? Well, this is one that did not come out in uh, twenty fifteen. It actually came out about sixty years ago, but I saw it in twenty fifteen. So we'll go ahead and, as far as I'm concerned, it came out in twenty fifteen. It's uh, Diabolique from the early nineteen fifties, a French picture which I recommended during our episode on Crimson Peak. And Diabolique is one of those that it's going to stick with me because. What it added to the film language, that's the, that's the real takeaway from mm-hmm. it, is the way they arranged shots, the way they made the story, told the story, is just something that, as I said at the time when I recommended it, it's what's happened in, after Diabolique, it's almost become cliche, but this was the origin point. This mm-hmm. was the alpha of that uh, cinematic language as far as suspense is concerned. And the director, I've seen two of his pictures. It's Henry something Clouseau, I believe. Henry George Clouseau. Henry, Henry George Clouseau. I've seen two of his pictures. The we other, sound so erudite. Yes, I know. The other being The Wages of Fear. Mm-hmm. And both of them are just wall-to-wall suspense, intrigue. You pay attention. It's uh, it, it's just he's he was a marvelous filmmaker, and I kind of wonder if maybe he's a little bit under the radar. 
And so that I would certainly recommend that uh, other people go after this, find Diabolique, and then also Wages of Fear, because just a terrific filmmaker and then a, a terrific suspense picture. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I like I like Diabolique a lot. I got to say, I think Wages of Fear is, uh, that might be the only other one that I've seen from him as well. I'd have to look, but Wages of Fear is a little higher for me. But he is like a, in his own right, a master of suspense. Uh, very, very good pick. Well, I, and I don't know if I mentioned this whenever I recommended it a few months ago, but this picture actually inspired Alfred Hitchcock to purchase a right. yes, purchase a French novella, which he turned into Vertigo. Right. So it, it's kind of funny looking back on it. I sometimes wonder what it would have been like to experience it at the time, be a cineast at the time, and just see the progression of filmmaker rivalries mm-hmm. almost, and how one inspires well, the that's, other. Well, that's not the only case of Hitchcock doing that either. Mm-hmm. There was also... Uh, Peeping Tom and then Psycho were very close. And there was, there was a somewhat of a contentious, like Hitchcock was like, well, I got to blow this out or no, I, I take that back. Hitchcock learned from the re- release of Peeping Tom that he had to be very careful and, and mindful of, of the promotion of it because Peeping Tom was like, basically people were up in arms about it, said it was just this dirty mm-hmm. sort of film. And um, he handled the promotion of Psycho in a way that was like um, very, uh, very soft hands. Yeah, true story. I'm reading Alfred Hitchcock's biography right now. It's called A Life in Darkness and Light, and he actually gave Michael Powell one of his first jobs in film. Really? Yeah, he hired him as a screenwriter. Interesting. Yeah, so that, there you go. That's a good choice. So numero quattro, Chris. Okay, so number four for me, um, I've got a bit of a tie, so my I, I'm going to say, like, I, I put these all on a list together, and I included some short films as well. A little lower on my list, I had Sanjay's Super Team which ran before uh, The Good Dinosaur. I know it's a cheat to have it on here, but I wanted to at least mention this film. It's uh, Calls to Oki's The Park Grub Story, which is a short film that we both saw before the Bo Jennings Vertigris documentary. And it's just, it, it's a really fun, it's about maybe a half hour, really fun film about uh, this small town crank caller who his friends made tapes of him you know, making generally a little crude, but generally harmless, uh, you know, prank calls in the eighties. And then those tapes sort of took on a life of their own, you know, it was at the, at a time when there was sort of this handshake culture of like tapes and VHS where, you know, you would, you would trade different, uh, Oh, have you, have you heard this weird thing? And yeah. That's it, was, how, it was pre-internet when people still talk to each other. Yeah. And so that's how this spread. And what's interesting about park grubs is, it happened in, I believe, Norman, Oklahoma. Bartle- Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Okay, excuse me. Not yeah. not even close, Hunter. Heaven in <laughs> Bartlesville, Oklahoma. But this was pre-Roy D. Mercer, which was a mm-hmm. big prank call thing here in the 90s and 2000s. And then also pre-Jerky Boys. And Jerky Boys was a little bit more mainstream. So for all intents and purposes, I'm not going to say this created it, but this <laughs> preceded mm-hmm. a lot of the really popular prank calls that happened, you know, that was really, really big in the 90s. And and it's just it's a fun little half hour story. Like, honestly, I would watch I would watch a full feature length documentary about this. So, Chris, do you have it on tape and maybe you could like <laughs> spread it around? Yeah, and we could all watch this documentary. I, you know, I only have it on Betamax. So if you have a Betamax player, I can make you a make you a dub. And uh, and you can spread it to your friends, but worth checking out. I think it's still doing the film festival circuit right now, so I don't know if or where you can see it. But uh, I'll at least I'll put the trailer up in the the show notes, and if if it's available online, I'll link to that as well. So my actual real uh, number four is this is probably no surprise. It's Mistress America. Um, we were graced with two Noah Baumbach films this year, and Mistress America is 
it's a delight to watch. I I've only seen it the once and I'm really excited to go back and see it again because I was going through my notes for this film, like just trying to figure out what I was going to say about it. And <laughs> the biggest thing that I noticed is that most of my notes are just quotes from this movie. And I found myself, you know, chuckling along, just, just going through some of them. Um, but it's a, I, I think it's a combination of, uh, you know, it's Bombeck and it's Gerwig who, um, she's, I would say not the star of this movie, but she's also a co-screenwriter. And I don't know if we talked about this much when we did our review, but there seems to be a lot of her sensibility in this screenplay. I mean, particularly if you compared it to uh, while we're young, which came out earlier in the year, there's, um, it's, it's a little closer to Francis Ha in, um, it's a little more, I guess a little less cynical. Well, that's which, actually, I'm, I'm, that's a good transition to what I was just going to say is I think absent Greta Gerwig, Noah Baumbach probably would have just descended into a, just a dark, very dark uh, place of cynicism wherever yeah. you're watching and think, is this supposed to be comedy? Cause it's getting very uncomfortable. I think she's lightened him up. So I, I, I absolutely agree. And so the combination of, of her as, you know, a screenwriter on this and then Lola Kirk, I'd seen her before in Gone Girl, but didn't even realize it. Yeah, it's same experience because, yeah, I know what you're talking she's, about. Yeah. She's the, like, trailer park neighbor in, in Gone Girl. And, I mean, she was fine there, but she was, you know, more a a piece for... She was an accessory, not yeah, a, exactly. a character. Here, um, she she plays a character that, I don't know, is a, uh, to me feels a little difficult to, to pull off because it could just very easily be like, a, eh, whatever. She, Manic pixie dream girl. Yeah, a little bit, but uh, she, she does it well and, and it kind of rides that line between like, sometimes you empathize with her, sometimes you're like, oh, you're kind of a bitch. And she does it. She does that very well. And then, you know, the movie descends into very quickly into a screwball comedy, particularly in that last like 45 minutes. And I just love that. So, that's, the, yeah, the one clear advantage, though, that while we're young has over Mistress America and this may be this is something that Mistress America couldn't possibly transcend is that while we're young had Charles Grodin in it. <laughs> this and is there true. are not enough Charles Grodin movies being made anymore. Yeah, well and there's not a I, I would argue there's probably not a part for Charles Grodin in uh, Mistress America. So it's uh it, it's a shame that he's not there. They could but. have tried to squeeze him in somehow. Like maybe they visited house with a guy who had a, a really big St. Bernard who just caused <laughs> a lot of trouble. That would have been no, that the, the St. Bernard could have come in the in the, the McMansion. Um, yes, exactly. You know, tor- towards the latter half of the movie. Well, oh, OK, wait, the more. pediatrician that could have been Charles Grodin. Uh, the, 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 pedi- pedi- the pedo pediatrician. The pedo pediatrician neighbor. That should have been Charles Grodin. <laughs> that's his. <laughs> and that's why I cannot recommend this film. Mistress America, I mean, it's fine, except for that huge huge lapse in judgment okay on Hunter, part. Well, what is what is the third film you can recommend from this year all right uh i i will uh, once again uh stick with an obvious choice here uh for a lot the same reason that uh i went with jurassic world except i would say that this is a better film overall is star wars the force awakens this is something that again you think about the pressure that everyone was mm-hmm. under for this to deliver and it could have it could have been lazy. It really could have been lazy and done just as well, done just fine, and probably would have made people just as happy. But the it fact w- it it would have definitely made bukus of money. Yeah, exactly. But the, it's it's one of those things. I would say, having seen it twice now, I'd still put it after uh, Empire Strikes Back and A New Hope. But it really is just a really solid, fantastic blockbuster film that you just you don't see these kind of pictures made anymore at this level they're mm-hmm. usually once again like i said very lazily constructed and 
much like the T-Rex versus Indominus Rex, there are a few parts. Actually, I guess, you know, you've probably already seen it by now. The part where Han Solo is killed, I have not had a a emotional reaction to a, par- a moment in a movie like that in a long time. Whenever he and Chewie separated, whenever he said to Chewie, mm-hmm. uh, take the, you know, take these, we'll meet up. That from the next five minutes until he was stabbed, my heart was beating very, I could just I, the anticipation of yes, it. Yes. Cause then, well, here we go. Cause I knew it was going to happen the entire movie. And then I thought it's forgive me for being over the top here, but it's like the movie equivalent of like knowing someone you care about is going to die. Mm-hmm. Like they have a, a incurable disease. So you just want to keep them alive as long as possible, but you know, it's going to end at some point in time. And then that was the part wherever it was. Okay, here we go. It's, it's about over. So when a movie can do that, a movie character, a movie franchise, whenever they can create that sort of emotion, I think that that's it's so rare that I really liked it. Yeah. Question: uh, It was added as number eleven to the, I believe, the Critics' Choice Critics Film Association to much controversy because it missed the filing deadline. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Star Wars: Force Awakens belongs in a top ten or top five Oscar ballot? Maybe a top five. I don't, or I'm sorry, maybe a top 10. I don't, I think this has been a really strong year. And so top five is a little, it's a little pushing it for me to be perfectly honest, but, uh, I would like to see it in a top 10. Mm-hmm. I'd be okay with that. Even, uh, spoilers. It's probably not going to make my top 10 of the year. All right. Well, I think that's probably as good a transition as any to number three. So I say that, and now we go into probably the least seen, uh, movie of of my list. Uh, this movie, it's a German film called Phoenix by director Christian Petzold. And it is a, at, at base level, I guess you could say it is a remake of Vertigo set in post-World War II Germany. Um, but that's, you know, and, and so there's a lot to like, just love about, you know, the meta cinematic aspect of that. But what, what this story basically is, is this uh, woman was sent off to a concentration camp, I believe Auschwitz and survived. And then, um, we join her after the war. She's going through reconstructive surgery and she wants, basically she wants her old face and the doctor tells her, you know, we can't do that. We can, uh, we can reconstruct your face, but you won't look like you did and goes back to her town, finds her, uh, husband, he doesn't recognize her. No one seems to really recognize her. And then he recruits her to pose as his wife so that he can get money for her death, essentially. And so it's this weird little like tango of um, emotion and, and, and well, and I guess the other thing that I should say is that it's, it's uh, implied that maybe he actually like gave her up to the Nazis. And so there's, you know, just this gray area that it's really playing in, in she's trying to first, you know, it, it could very easily be a revenge movie and it, it doesn't turn into, if it were Korean and not German, it would have been a revenge or, movie. or Tarantino, yeah, you know, um, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't fall into that sort of, that sort of trapping. It's for all intents and purposes, it's a pretty small little, little film, but, uh, I like what it does with humanity, with relationships, you know, it's exploring this, uh, you know, did he, or didn't he sell her out to the Nazis? And what does that really mean? What does that mean to their relationship? And, um, so it's not just a black and white, like, Oh, he was evil and she was, uh, innocent angel. And, and so she needs to get revenge. It's, it's deeper than that. And, 
Um, I'm certainly not the first person to say this, but the, the end of this movie is spectacular. Like it is so subtly crafted, but such a, like literally like I left me breathless. Like I was holding my breath at the very end and, uh, it's, it's worth it for that alone, but it's, it's a wonderful little movie. It's on Netflix right now. I highly, highly recommend it. I imagine, uh, it'll probably end up in, uh, the Oscar running for best uh, foreign film, I would, I would assume. Terrific. Um, so my next pick is one that is almost certainly going to wind up in the best picture race. And it's, th- this is just an astounding thing to think about, particularly uh, just, you know, think about this in 2014 and then come back to 2015. And now it's just a, uh, a given that the front runner for best picture this year is Mad Max Fury Road. That boggles my mind. That we're that this year it's it you've got so many even if they're good you've got so many traditional Oscar mm-hmm. fare and yet the one that it seems like the critics are lining around is just a wall to wall greased up gun toting action picture and what's amazing about that to me is that this isn't a an action movie that's trying to be smart per se it's just trying to be extremely well crafted. And what's an, uh, what's an interesting thing is, in many ways, this was the year of the sequel. We've gotten Star Wars Force Awakens. We've gotten Creed. We've gotten Jurassic World. All of those were directed by fans of the original series coming in and kind of doing their thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Mad Max, this is the original director coming back. and Who's been off making family movies. Yes, and, exactly. And uh, and television. Happy, yeah, exactly. Happy Feet. And then he comes back. And it, just to see someone who is just at the pinnacle of his craft able to pull this off and it it's just it's a very tight wire that somehow never snaps it's it's probably as fine an example of action filmmaking as you're gonna see i would say it's the best action movie made in america or anywhere since terminator 2 just, wow that's yeah, yeah high praise indeed and then and it just makes I, I like it i don't i'm not sure that oscar voters are ready to give it best picture but it just amazes me that it is for all intents and purposes the front runner yeah i mean it's the best picture yeah race. critics uh critics groups have already given it uh you know several gave it their best picture for uh for 2015 so i'm you know we might hear a little more about this uh a little later yeah, on. No, I, yeah, no, I, I think it's almost uh, a given it's going to be nominated. It's just, I, I'm curious how Oscar voters are going to react to yeah, this, yeah. this being one of the front runners. I, I am as well. So my number two pick for this year is a movie that came out back in the spring. And we, I think we were slated to talk about it at one point and schedule conflict didn't allow us to, but uh, it stuck with me, with me for a very long time after that. And, and as a result, it's, it's made it to this spot on my list. It's Ex Machina by Alex Garland. And the thing I've always liked uh, the movies that Alex Garland has written. This is his directorial debut, but there's always been, there's always little things that kind of bug me. Like uh, Sunshine is a great concept a great idea it gets off the rails towards the end or 28 days later is a pretty maybe danny boyle is actually the thing that uh which is yeah kind of astounding to think about but 28 days later kind of does the same thing or dread actually not not danny boyle um does does it like i i like really like what he did with you know a pre-existing property um doing something completely new and, and different with it it's uh the the film itself is a lot of fun it's not perfect, um, but I I enjoy it. I enjoy the world that he he sort of lays out. Actually, not to not to take us off on a detour here. Have you seen Dread? 
Yeah. You, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say that Dread is maybe every bit as good as Mad Max, as far as just being just a it's, straight through, simple story, just compelling action picture. It's kind of funny how just, I guess, scheduling and what eyes mm-hmm. are paying attention to that Dread just never found an audience. But I, I think Dread is maybe a little better on the page than it is on the screen in like, because that, you know, there's so much about the way that it's a very tight sort of, sort mm-hmm. of, and there are, there are just some directorial choices that I didn't love. Like some of the, I like, I like the concept of actually showing POV of how the drug affects people, but mm-hmm. it got a little hokey at times. Yeah. Little things like that here, ex machina, he's given the chance to actually be the architect of his own, uh, his own screenplay. And I think it really pays off. It's a tight sort of, uh, slow burn 70s sci-fi movie about artificial intelligence. I spoke about it a little bit on the last episode in my recommendation. Um, and Oscar Isaac is so damn good in this. Alicia Vikander, who plays Ava, the the robot who's basically being taken through the Turing test by uh, Donnell Gleason, is really great. Donnell Gleason is okay in this. Um, but it's a type of movie, uh, I and I, I think I mentioned this before as well, you rewatch it and it takes on a whole different... Uh, a whole different view. So the first time going through, I, it was a sort of suspense thriller for me, you know, like uh slow burn, but a lot of like, Oh gosh, who's the bad guy sort of thing. Going back through it again, you know, everything, but it actually makes it maybe a little more complicated. You're, you're no longer on the edge of your seat wondering like who's messing with who, but more like reading into the little moments of uh, how characters interact. And so it's, it's a, the second time I watched it, it was a completely different viewing experience. Uh, and for that, like, that's something that does not happen very often. And, and it's just a movie that like each time I watch it, it stays in my head for weeks or I'm just like kind of folding over the implication of, of what it's trying to get out. Cause there are no like clear answers. It's, it's more an argument or a discussion, not, not a like trying to say, these are the good guys. These are the bad guys and somebody wins in the end. Um, and I really like that about it. All right. Well, speaking of these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, I'll go to my – and actually, a bit actually, I know that I haven't really had a structure per se, but I would say that this is probably my number one picture of 2015 of the ones I've seen. You can't put Jurassic Park on the list twice. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's actually Creed. Okay. Uh, I would say that Creed is my favorite picture of the year. Here's the thing about Creed is if you are a Rocky fan, then this is everything you could ever want it to be. If you're not a Rocky fan, if you're not a boxing fan, this is a absolutely terrific drama, very compelling story. And the what the thing that I really struck me the first time, <laughs> struck me, the thing that really struck me about this watching it the first time is the way the boxing scenes are filmed. It's it. I would almost say it's kind of a new uh, paradigm as far as filming boxing scenes. The original Rocky kind of being a almost classic, uh, a classic action scene style, and then you go to Raging Bull, which is more a poetic violence style. Mm-hmm. This is as close to actually knowing what it's like to be in a boxing ring as I think anyone's comfortable getting, as far as filming boxing scenes are concerned. There's a certain parts wherever he films entire three or four round fights in one shot. Hmm. And generally, I'm not a big fan of the whole one shot thing, but he manages to pull it off without being obnoxious. He being Ryan Coogler, the 
discovery in this movie in many ways is Sylvester Stallone. Because, <laughs> the rediscovery? Yeah, exactly. The rediscovery. And he's almost certain to get nominated and perhaps even win for a supporting actor. I, I it, it meant a lot to me as a fan of this character and just a fan of American pop culture in general to see someone come back and play this this kind of totem of American popular culture and find new things to say about him. And I don't want to spoil it, but the the whole idea of the Rocky franchise and then Creed as well is just the idea of the underdog fighting. And so Rocky at this point in time in his life is in his 70s. He can't box anymore, but they managed to come up with a they managed to come up with a way for him to continue fighting some sort of struggle and I don't want to say it cuz I don't want to spoil it but it was very satisfying in that regard and so I would say I'm a little bit nervous it won't get nominated for best picture just cuz like you said it's a strong year and I'm not sure that the momentum's behind it anymore mm-hmm. I think as far as popular mainstream pictures I think Martian Star Wars and Mad Ra- Mad Max probably have a little bit more energy behind them and momentum I, so I don't I'm a little bit nervous it won't get nominated for best picture, but it should because I would say it's uh, my favorite picture of 2015 Creed. Good. That's that's one that I still haven't seen, but it's I, I want to get to it before. Well, it I'm curious. How, how are you doing on uh, your Rocky? Uh, have you seen them all? I've only seen the first one. That's the only one I really honestly you can like. get. A, here's the thing. You can get away with only seeing the first, but we've talked in the past about vague sequels uh-huh. and how you do a sequel to just the original and then kind of pretend that others didn't happen. This isn't that because it makes references to pretty much all five films, even, you know, the truly cruddy ones, Rocky Balboa. Yeah. But you don't have Rocky to four. Yeah. Rocky four, Rocky. Yeah. Pretty much all of them. It has some sort of reference for it. Cause spoiler alert in Rocky four, that's when Apollo Creed dies. But, um, it manages to do it in a way that doesn't require you to have seen those films. Good. That's that's a great transition for me. So my number one movie of the year is also a sequel. And it's a movie you've already talked about. It's Mad Max Fury Road. And the thing that I love about this movie is it's, you know, at its core, it is pure cinema distilled on screen. It's just George Miller has... He's, he's a filmmaker who's, you know, in his... Did you say he's in his, in his 70s now? I mean, he's... I think he's in his 60s. But okay. yeah, he's, he's up there. He's But he's... Yeah, he's been making films for... 35 plus years and he's a sort of filmmaker that you can tell he's actually he's continued to grow but you know you know what i love about fury road is the way miller a he brings in this world and these characters or this character that that you know before but you don't need to know anything about it uh going in and that's that's sort of the core of what i love about this movie on like just throughout the entire thing he trusts the audience to understand what's going on, to infer by, you know, doing just letting you live with these characters in their environment, figure out what relationships are like. We don't ever get a moment where it's like, oh, well, the bullet farmer, he's the guy who we always buy ammunition from. Oh, the people eater from from Gastown. He's the guy who we all buy ga- gasoline from. Yeah, exactly. There, it, I don't think there is one line of exposition in this entire film. There, there may be there. I think there's maybe a couple with Nux, um, the the war boy who kind of turns into a turns into a good guy, but there's not much. And it's it's one of those movies. I don't think I've seen anything since maybe Drive that is so intent on just letting things play out on screen in a as cinematic a form as possible and allowing the audience to just make the connections between a plus B equals C, you know, it's, it's montage, it's 
just all of that. And Miller does a really great job of building an action movie that is very high octane. And, but he doesn't just do balls to the wall. He pulls things back every once in a while, like every half hour or so you get a little breather so that it's, it's not just completely disorienting. And then also the way that he just frames everything. I don't know if you've seen this, uh, uh, Mad Max centered, I think Vashi visual, uh, mm-hmm. did this little vid- video essay of how most of the action in the film is just right in the center of the frame so that you always know exactly where to look. And whenever it's not, he, he does a very good job of drawing your eye to, to the spot where, where things are happening. It's just, it's a, uh, it's masterful filmmaking that I was not expecting uh, like, had you asked me at the beginning in January of 2015, um, what do you, what do you think of this new Mad Max movie coming out? I'm like, eh, it might be fun. Well, that's the thing is I don't think anyone was expecting this George Miller included. Yeah. And those are the best, uh, mainstream movies, best movies in general is whenever it doesn't feel like the filmmakers are making it to win awards. For instance, I haven't seen the big short, but that mm-hmm. feels like something that we're making this to make awards and we're making this to make a statement. We're going to say something, duh, 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 you know, yeah. that kind of thing. This feels like George Miller just loves this character, loves this world and hasn't been able to go back to it in a very, very long time. 30 years. Yeah. And so now he's he's just all that pent up imagination finally going to the screen and at the hands of a director who. Again, he's done Happy Feet, so he's kind of he's not not really someone that has gotten a lot of critical acclaim in the past decade or so, and then he just comes roaring back to life. Yeah, it, absolutely amazing. All right, so now that we have our top five films of the year out of the list, or films we viewed of the year out of the list, let's do a bit of a lightning round of the top five discoveries of the year. These are things that we, uh, you know, for whatever reason, hadn't uh, hadn't seen, hadn't really been aware of until 2015 that uh, delighted us. Well, this doesn't count as a discovery, so I'll just go ahead and do this as like bonus content, because as a closet pro wrestling fan, I've known about him for <laughs> well over a decade. Um, in fact, I traveled to Miami, Florida to see him do battle with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Did you? And then I traveled to New York to see him do a rematch with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And this is John Cena. So he's a discovery only insofar as I didn't know that he could be as funny on screen. Okay. Because actually, as a wrestler, he's very talented, but he's kind of lame. His character's kind of lame. I would have never thought that I'd like him this much. <laughs> what about as a rapper? As a rapper, it's even worse. However, as an Instagrammer, you should follow him on Instagram because what he does is it's not your typical celebrity Instagram where they post them post themselves, you know, doing charity events. He just posts random pictures, truly all sorts of things with no context whatsoever. Wonderful. I might have to look him yeah, up. I'm, exactly. following, I'm following The Rock. I'm not following John Cena. Well, what, you need what am to, I doing I mean, with my yeah, life? Yeah, need to start following John Cena too. Okay, well, I'm just going to, my my number five is also John Cena. Um, I was, unlike you, I was completely unaware of him. Re- well, I mean, I knew I knew he existed. I knew he was uh, in that Marine movie several years ago. I knew he had a rap album out because uh, when I worked at Best Buy in, in college, like a lot of people came in looking for it. But uh other than that, like I didn't, I certainly didn't know he had the comedic chops that he does. Question and the next rock? Question mark. Uh, I think he's different than the rock, but I think he has that potential of being someone who, like, I will see a movie just because John Cena is in it. So, in that context, yes, absolutely. Um, but so seeing him in Trainwreck was a huge surprise. Just that, like, he would be my favorite thing of the the movie. Being, you know, just being like I. I'm just not a never was a pro wrestling fan. And so like there was there was no reason for me to believe that like, oh, he's he's going to be the best part of this. And then a couple of weeks ago, my wife drug me to see Sisters, the Amy Poehler, Tina Fey movie, which is 
it's fine. It's not a good movie, but it's kind of fun. But he shows up, you know, maybe 30 minutes in as this drug dealer, this terrifying drug dealer. And he's fantastic in that as well. Um, the, the biggest laughs of that movie come from John Cena too. So, uh, yeah, really, really a great discovery. And then have you seen this, uh, seven minutes in heaven with Michael Bryan, former SNL? I have not now. Okay. Um, this former SNL cast member, Michael Bryan does this little like web series where he interviews people in a closet and John Cena, like it, it's, he's stealing the show in this. He is like, it, it's, it's so good. Um, He's totally game to play along with the goofiness. He's trying on different hats and and clothes in the closet. And he does. He's a great straight man. You know, he will he will play the joke completely stone cold, but stone cold Steve Austin, maybe. No, not stone cold Steve Austin, (laughs) but uh, which just makes it all all the funnier. So I'll link to this in the show notes, too. All right. Um discoveries doesn't necessarily imply that's a good discovery. It's just a discovery. You found it. Yeah. I have known about this for a number of years, but I've never actually taken the time to watch it. It is an hour and a half, which explains it. We mentioned it in the Star Wars episode. It's oh, the gosh. Star Wars holiday special. I actually watched it from start to finish, all 90 minutes of it. And the thing about it is I was hoping it would just be bonkers and asinine acid trip insanity. And it's that, but it's also extremely boring it's it's sometimes it's so bad it's good but mostly it's just filled with fluff yeah exactly it it was a straw it was kind of like running a marathon however what is cool is i have a relative who is married to the guitarist for jefferson starship and he was in this he's playing the guitar in the star wars (laughs) holiday special i I made a little gif of this should i put this in i absolutely you should so there's that little bit of trivia for you yeah and if you uh this is actually not on my my list because i've I've known about it for, for a while and, and seen I well, I guess this year was the first time I really sat down and watched the whole thing. But um, I think we've talked about this on the show before, but not recently. Uh, the Reddit subreddit Lumpy Gifts, me and a couple of friends have for the past year, year and a half, probably year and a half or so, um, you know, on occasion, we'll make uh, gifts of Lumpy, which is Chewbacca's son uh, in in the special uh, you know, just doing random stuff because Lumpy's a really goofy, weird it, Chewbacca's creature. family. All of it's very strange. Do you yeah. think that that's part of canon, or do you think that that's been erased? Uh, well, we might talk about this a little bit later. Okay, we might talk about it li- a little <laughs> bit later. But yeah, Star Wars holiday special, and then the relative is David Freiberg, who was with Jefferson Starship, and he's actually on Wikipedia. Yeah, so I this mean, is he true. is he is actually part of Star Wars canon, even if Lumpy isn't. Okay, so my number four is previously dismissed pictures. So these are sort of rediscoveries. These are movies that I saw previously and underappreciated. Starting with Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, which is an old F.W. Murnau film that um, is like, I, I saw it in the wrong context, I think, initially, which was like, this is one of the greatest silent films ever made. It's doing so many revolutionary things. It's, you know, just a lot of praise put upon it. And I was at this point in my, you know, like I think college years where I was like, oh, well, if you think it's great, I'm going to find everything to hate about it. And so I was very resistant to it. I saw it again. And it's uh, it's a type of film that I don't think could be made today. And it's also the type of film that is very uh, it's you couldn't make with sound. It only functions because it's a silent film. So I love love that about it. Uh, a couple others, Paths of Glory, the Kubrick film. I saw it. I liked it. Didn't love it. Was blown away this time watching it. And then uh, 
Peeping Tom, the uh, Michael Powell movie, which uh, famously got him in, into a bit of hot water. I mentioned it earlier. Um, another one that I, I saw before, I liked it. I liked, I liked it visually. I thought story-wise it was a little rough. Loved it this time. And then finally The Squid and the Whale, which I didn't really sort of hated uh, initially, uh, but rewatched it because, you know, it's one of only two Noah Baumbach movies I didn't really like and really connected with it on a different level, which I don't know what that says about me. Maybe I'm I'm slowly turning into you. Honey. Yeah, exactly. And that that's not something you want. Um, but actually, I kind of slowly turn into you because my next uh, discovery is Funny Games, which is a movie that you've Ooh, mentioned yeah. in the past. Is However, I don't think I saw the version you did because you saw it in I, theaters. I, so, well, I've, I've seen both of them. Okay, but the one you saw in theaters, I imagine, was the Naomi Watts, yeah, yeah. Tim Roth one. Yeah. So it's one of those things, whenever you said you saw it in theaters, I thought, what was he like nine or 10 years yeah. old and he was going to foreign films <laughs> yeah nine or 10 year old so you saw the original i have not what, seen like i have not seen the remake okay. yeah I, I saw the uh the original uh from sweden and uh as chris has mentioned in previous episodes it's um it's a very tough thing to watch because it is just an exercise in sadism i'm not sure that i liked it but i would recommend you see it it's it's a movie that you cannot get out of your head once you've once you've seen it for better or worse well, it's one of those things wherever I've seen horror films, for instance, I saw uh, The Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time. That's actually a pretty solid discovery. But anyway, it's not one of those wherever, for me, you get scared. You just really, really, really dislike the villains, which, I, I mean, extreme okay. dislike is a, an emotion, too. So so that's actually a – I've seen both of them, and I think the villains are creepier in the remake. It's Michael Pitt, and I forget the other guy's name. Um in, in the American English language version, I guess, um, made in America, but mostly British, half a British cast. Um, it's they're they're just there's something about the I mean, and, and the movie, the two movies are identical, like identical dialogue, identical framing, identical staging. Um, but there's just something about the performances of those two guys in the English speaking version that really makes my skin crawl even more than the original. So, Well, and I must say that a couple of, you know, tennis players in short shorts, that would make anyone's skin crawl. <laughs> so it, it, they don't even need to be scary at that point. Okay, so for my number three, I'm going to go the opposite direction. I'm going to go just really fun, broad laughs. And that's uh, Buster Keaton short films, which I've spoken about before. They're all available on Hulu, I believe. And I... Like they're just so much fun. It's I was you know familiar with Buster Keaton before. You know, I'd seen Steamboat Bill Jr. and Sherlock Jr. and all the juniors, I suppose, and the General and um, all those things. But there's something about the shorts that I really love because it shows like a lot of times, particularly in silent shorts, it's just goofiness. It's just like we're gonna get some yucks off for a reel, you know, for 20 minutes or whatever. And he really, you know, he builds a pretty good story. He has. Um, you know, he has callbacks and some of his sight gags and that sort of thing. And, and so it really gives you a very uh, myopic view of how he functioned as a filmmaker. Um, and and they're just they're delightful fun. Like, even if you don't like uh, silent films, like I think I think you'll enjoy these because um, they're they're funny. They're well made They're Some of the feats are just incredible. Um, so, I yeah, check check these out on Hulu. If you know that it. that's that's a definite for me. Uh, so my next discovery is a two-parter. It's Ryan Coogler slash Michael B. Jordan, who are the director and star, respectively, of Creed, my number one picture this year. And I decided to go ahead and check out Fruitvale Station, which is on Netflix. And that's also a wonderful picture. So I'm really excited to see these two 
what they're going to do next. Mm-hmm. For those of you who don't know, Fruitvale Station was about, it's pertinent now, it was set, it was made, I believe, in 2013. And that sounds right, yeah. Yeah, and it was set, I think, 2009, and it's about a young man who was shot and killed by the police at a subway station in Oakland, California. And so, once again, like I said, uh, perhaps a little bit ahead of its time, almost, but just the, the the blending of those two, they're able to make really incisive commentary without being as aggressive. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're not aggressive. They're not pointing any fingers. They're just they're just telling it like it is. And so I, I appreciate that style of filmmaking because it gets you to pay attention to it more, in my opinion. So Ryan Coogler and Michael B. Jordan looking forward to what they're going to do next. Okay. Fruitvale Station is one of those that I've always intended to see. It's just sort of slipped through the cracks. Well, and yeah, but it's it's right there on Netflix. So yeah. I thought, oh, well, how convenient. I'll, I'll have to add it to my, uh, my, my list. Yeah, and exactly. And I don't think that I'm as big a fan of Michael B. Jordan that I'm willing to sit through Fantastic Four. I will say <laughs> that. Well, you could sit sit through it for like the there. I'm sure there's a Fantastic Four drinking game every time a a wig shows up or uh, it's it's a clear uh, uh, reshoot. Yeah, I'm, drink. yeah. Actually, I'm not sure I'm willing to do that. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, my number two is something I've talked about on the show before. It's uh, the work of Satajit Ray. I've been aware of Ray for a long time. Um, you know, Wes Anderson has cited him as a big influence. He used a lot of his music in Darjeeling Limited, um, and which is actually one of the reasons I like Darjeeling Limited as much as I do. Um, but I hadn't really seen any of his movies until this year. I didn't know where to start. Um, the podcast Film Spotting did a Satajit Ray marathon. I followed along because I figured it was a great way to finally jump in and just pretty much everything is a masterpiece. Uh, a few films that I think you should check out as an entry point. I think the big city is maybe a perfect way to like dive into what he's doing. It's a, it's a modern day, uh, film. Whereas a lot of his stuff is, uh, they're period pieces, Bengali period pieces. Um, so that, that's a good place to start. Uh, the music room is beautiful and amazing and haunting. And then the Apu trilogy, which Criterion just re-released, which I, which I've spoken about before is also, um, wonderful and heartbreaking. Um, so all worth checking out. If, you know, if you have been interested in Ray, but don't know where to start, start with these. And actually that's a pretty good transition to my discovery. It's, uh, what I'll preface this by saying one of my most anticipated pictures of 2016 is Martin Scorsese's next silence, which is based on a novel by mm-hmm. Shizaki Indu about some missionary Catholic priests who are persecuted in medieval Japan. And I didn't know this until I, discovered it on hulu is that there is actually a 70s version of this film and it's not what you expect it's not really then the reason it's not my top five it's not really what i wanted it to be but it's the conclusion of this film is very surprising and so i'm looking forward to martin scorsese putting his hands on it see what he does with it yeah absolutely uh my number one is a movie that uh we actually reviewed on the show at my insistence it's a documentary called rich hill um, if you want to hear me gush on, on that film, go back to, I don't know, it's probably like episode five or six. And, uh, it's, it's just a, it's a rare sort of film that, uh, I don't know. You just, you don't, you don't get many documentaries like this where they really, the filmmakers feel like they're invisible and they don't even exist. And they've developed this relationship with these young boys. Um, that's sort of, it's heartbreaking and it's remarkable and, uh, it's just a beautiful film. It's on Netflix. Uh, if you haven't seen it, if you didn't see it at my insistence the first time, I'm insisting once again, go and watch it. Uh, it's, 
it's just a wonderful piece of, of filmmaking. I wish it had come out this year because it would probably be honestly my number one of the year. Interesting. And I actually, I, I don't think I've told you this before. I actually drove past Rich Hill. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I was coming back from, I think, either St. Louis or Kansas City. And yeah, <laughs> I drove past and I saw the Rich Hill uh, exit sign. I, d- I decided not to drive into Rich Hill, but I drove right. past Rich Hill. Well, Chris, in typical Hunterian fashion, I'm going to cheat a little bit and go ahead and have a sixth discovery. This is my true number one discovery. Oh, okay. Because this is probably the mother of all war crimes, certainly as far as you're concerned. <laughs> I saw this for the very first time this year is Top Gun. Oh, I, okay. And, so you're you're being a maverick by adding Yes, you might say I'm being a maverick. I'd been, uh, I'd been an Iceman for so long, I decided to finally, finally... Here's the thing, though, is it was on Netflix. It was right there. You've mentioned before that you don't know. It boggles your mind how I was never able to see this, and I uh-huh. frankly don't understand it either. I, th- I had seen TBS bits and pieces, but as far as start to finish, I'd never seen it until this year. And, you know, it, it's it's Top Gun. It, it yeah. is Top Gun. It it's, is Top Gun. That's all you need to say. I'll, I'll say when we did our big uh, Tom Cruise deep dive, I watched that movie either two or three times. Like I watched it, I watched it with friends and then we watched it, I think the following week again, just because we were hanging out and we're like, Hey, let's put Top Gun on. It's on Netflix. Yeah. You just, it's just, uh, it's like a drug. <laughs> it is. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, you know, I, you cheated, but I'm, uh, I'm perfectly okay with this. Yeah, exactly. You might say that could be your sixth as well as you rediscovered. I rediscovered, you, you re- I rediscovered Top Gun for the umpteenth hundred yeah you, you discovered top gun is something new every time well folks those are our top five films of the year and then our top five and six discoveries of five-ish the year. Discoveries. yeah five-ish discoveries of the year but we'd like to hear yours tell us at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com and stick around for listener feedback and our first annual inaugural blimpy awards coming up next you feel that no what is it i sense something in the listener mailbag a presence i have not felt since uh dude you, you kind of just trailed off back there oh uh sorry that happens sometimes when i use the force oh uh here it is it looks like longtime listener amy has ridden in once again this time with feedback on star wars the force awakens amy writes i have to say i both eagerly anticipated and slightly dreaded listening to your last podcast As a diehard Star Wars fan, I love to discuss and hear other people's opinions on the franchise, but my own disposition tends to make me something of an apologist for Lucas and the prequels. Since Star Wars discussions inevitably move into that realm, I always find myself sad to hear people diss on my beloved fandom. 
However, I am happy to say that I was overwhelmingly pleased with your discussions on the last podcast. I think that the three of you were fair in both your praise and criticisms of not only this newest installment of the Star Wars universe, but to the franchise as a whole and its creator. I found myself nodding along through the whole thing. Amy continues. There's one area, though, that I think your discussion was lacking. Plot speculation and fan theories. I stayed as far away from the speculation as I could before TFA, but now I can't get enough. I'd like to know what you both predict will unfold in the upcoming films. Better yet, give us something you wildly hope for, but doubt will happen, along with your more realistic prediction. My husband and I both agree that Ray might be Luke's daughter. Where we differ is that he's betting the mother was good, and likely killed off by Kylo Ren, and that Luke hit her away and went into exile to protect her. While well, I have my fingers crossed that the mother also turned bad and is yet to be revealed. I just think that a Luke versus his own wife duel would be amazing. As always, it's a joy to listen. Well, Chris, there you have it. Amy wants some fan theories and plot speculation. All right. But after you, use your force. Okay, so I, I've i still avoided uh, the, the fan theories as much as possible. I just, I don't, I don't really enjoy that because I don't, I don't want to get caught up in anticipating something that doesn't happen. Like, I'm fine with... I'm fine with uh, you know discussing things once the movies are are out, but beforehand, I don't I don't want to build up any you know. It, you know, it's one of those things. What are you going to get out of it? Because either I mean, it's fun. Don't get me wrong. It, I do. It's, it. a, lot it's a lot of fun. But either a, it's not going to happen. You're going to be disappointed, or b, it's going to happen and you already spoil it for yourself. So I've got a I, I have a few theories that I've just made up. These aren't even like. As far as I know, these aren't actual fan theories, but the first one, uh, you know, she kind of hints at some sort of uh, some expanded universe stuff with Luke's wife being killed or being dark side, you know, those, those sorts of things. Um, this first one is stolen from the expanded universe idea that Luke's hand was recovered from when, when it was chopped off and an evil Luke was created and used you know, in the dark side against Luke Skywalker. I believe actually Luke Skywalker and Luke Skywalker as, as his name was, um, in, end up fighting at some point. So this theory is that maybe the first order actually finds Han Solo in the trash compactor with phasma. They clone him and then he create, they create an evil Han Solo. The only thing about that is they wouldn't be able to cast Harrison Ford cause he's done with this. But don't worry, because I have a solution. Evil Han Solo will be played by Christopher Walken. Oh, my God. Yes. I, I like this theory even more now. Yeah, exactly. This has to happen. Like Episode, episode, episode eight, The Walken Awakens. <laughs> I, I would buy a ticket to that, especially if he's like doing half the uh, uh, Captain Hook from, from the Peter Pan musical earlier this year. Yeah. And then uh, they ask him what planet he comes from, and he says, Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you have any actual uh, fan theories? I, I I have I have only one, but I'm looking at your notes here, and I want to talk about this one because this next one you have coming up is my actual fan theory as well. Okay. So the, this I did this one kind of tongue in cheek. I guess there's a little bit of of this maybe floating around, but uh, you know, in the prequels, Yoda says always two there are, and I was thinking, what if uh, always two there are was a misdirect, not meaning. Uh, there's a master and apprentice, even though that's what he says, but maybe there's always two twins, you know, you've got Luke and Leia, maybe, uh, Kylo Ren and Ray are twins. And that's, that's a big reveal. I, I don't love this idea to be perfectly honest. I just wanted to, to shoot. Well, do you, do you want Ray to be a Skywalker? Um, I think she kind of needs to be a Skywalker, mm -hmm. but not I, necessarily a solo Skywalker. I'm not, I'm not in love with it. I would prefer she's Luke instead of solo and Leia, to be perfectly honest, mm -hmm. because if if she's solo and Leia, then there's just a lot of there may be terrible parents. 
you know. Well, does that really surprise anyone, though? I mean, I guess not. Like, Han Solo's, he's, you know, he's a Han Solo type. Exactly. Uh, so this is a theory that I think is it will actually be borne out in the next couple of years and be absolute fact. A lot of people have been speculating on who Grandmaster Snoke is. And what is going to happen is in episode nine, he is going to be revealed as George Lucas. George <laughs> Lucas is Grandmaster Snoke, who is the person behind all of this, uh, the entire new series. He is the grand villain of the entire Star Wars franchise. Yeah, that that is something that I, I had forgotten about. And, you know, when he signed everything away, he also signed away his likeness. Yes, exactly. So, uh, yeah. And so he doesn't even have to play it because, yeah. as we know from the past, George Lucas can just CG things in after the fact. So, well, what I've heard is that it's actually going to be half Andy Serkis, half Christopher Walken. But in either event, they will be playing George Lucas. George Lucas will be revealed as the grand evil ultimate villain of the Star Wars franchise. You know, Hunter, I don't think we've really met Amy's request, but uh, I don't know. We got a lot. We got to move on. I think we created a better film, actually, (laughs) which surely as a Star Wars fan, she would appreciate. We've created an alternate universe for sure. Uh, So, yeah, I'm I'm okay with moving on. Are you okay? Absolutely. Well, listeners, do you have a hot take on Rey's parentage or Boba Fett's triumphant escape from the Sarlacc pit? Or what Lumpy's doing now that he's a grown-ass Wookiee? Tell us at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Well, Chris, it is awards season here at War Starts at Midnight, and we are going to present the first annual inaugural Blimpy Awards. So why don't you top us off here? So the first award that we have is the James Bond Award. Now, there were several spy movies this year, including a James Bond picture, Spectre. But we also had the fifth Mission Impossible film. And Kingsman, the Matthew Vaughn picture, which is sort of a it, it's a very like self-aware, tongue in cheek uh, British spy movie that that definitely loves uh, James Bond. You so. also have the man from Uncle, but I don't oh, think anyone do. saw that. Yet. Yeah, uh, that's I, I've seen those three. I have not seen Man from Uncle. Mm-hmm. So that's that's out of no uh, one else has. So I wouldn't worry about yeah. it. Yeah. So, Hunter, where where do you fall? Um, As the weeks have turned into months. I was tepid about Spectre. I now flat out do not like Spectre. The more I've thought about it, I, I, I just I, I don't like Spectre. So it can't Spectre is not the best James Bond picture of the year. I would say it's Mission Impossible. However, I'm going to kind of turn this around and say that while Mission Impossible was the best James Bond picture of the year, it was not the best Mission Impossible picture. Uh, we are in lockstep. I'm also going with Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Even like I was pretty glowing on Spectre, but I was also coming off of this huge James Bond high. And so that's Spectre is one of these, like it falls right in the middle of James Bond movies. I think in that, like a majority of James Bond movies are not masterpieces and are very problematic. And it has a whole lot of that. And as I said, I think in our Mission Impossible review, like, it kind of feels like they have become an American James Bond. Right. And uh, it's it's not my favorite Mission Impossible film, but it was it was very good. It was very solid. It had a very James Bond style villain. And uh, one of my favorite things about James Bond pictures that doesn't happen very often, but when it does just sets me over the moon is a really good Bond girl. And I think Rebecca Ferguson is that mm-hmm. in Rogue Nation. She's I don't even know if we talked much about her in the review, but she's wonderful in that movie. She's like the thing that makes me want to go back and, and revisit it the most. The thing the reason I would say that's the best James Bond picture of the year is because ever since, you know, since the beginning, the Mission Impossible series has been very much centered around Tom Cruise. Now mm-hmm. they've kind of added a team to it, but it's been pretty much the Tom Cruise show. 
show. Yeah. So the reason why I wouldn't say it's the best Mission Impossible picture of the year is because I think that is actually Furious 7. Oh, because Furious okay. 7 is a true ensemble action picture. Have you caught I, up with I, the Furious I have picture? not. I've, I've only seen a handful of the Well, Furious here's pictures. the thing is I was never a fan of the, of the Fast and the Furious because I'm just not really a car guy. It's a very, very strange franchise because over the course of seven films you've had basically car thieves and people who you know race cars that was their hobby now they've turned into basically an international spy team just solely <laughs> due to the skill set of them being able to steal cars however um it, it it's it, it's just a really exciting action franchise okay. without being completely lunacy you know okay. what I, I mean it's it's not without being cynical i think it is lunacy but it's not cynical mm-hmm. you know and, and the rock is in the past and, and yes no exactly and the rock has been in the past three and then like i said even though vin diesel is the leader it is an ensemble picture in which each entity of the team is doing something different uh-huh. so i would say that's the best mission impossible picture of the year okay wonderful i might have to catch up with that one then Okay, coming up next, we've got the Electric Boogaloo Award, which is the award for achievement in greatest sequel subtitle of the year. So, Hunter, where are you going with this? It's actually a three-way tie. I'm going to go with The Force Awakens and Fury Road on on one spectrum, Uh because I really appreciate that they weren't lazy and didn't do Rise, because Rise is the most overused subtitle. Comes up a lot, yeah. Yeah. And then this is kind of a, a, this probably doesn't count, but I like just the, the, inanity of the fast and the furious how they're titling their sequels because it's like the, fast five and then furious seven and yeah. then i can't i can't even remember what the sixth one so is it, called at this point you're, you're going with the anti exactly uh, yeah title on this yeah one. so that's what i that's what i am amused by okay. with the fast and the furious it's just furious seven okay so for my pick i've railed on this movie a whole lot this year um, but there is one thing that I really like about it, and it's its subtitle, and that's Magic Mike Double XL. And that is specifically because, like the awards namesake, I think I'm going to be adding Double XL to the end of a lot of like unnecessary sequels for years to come. And it's just a lot of fun to say. Yeah, I, I tend to think that that's going to have that's probably going to outlast the movie itself, Double XL. I, I think so too. Although you know, critics have been I I haven't seen it come up on any like necessarily top 10 list but you know honorable mention sort of stuff like they were they were a lot more into it than i was and i really liked the first magic mike this one just didn't do it for me all right well there you go and then this isn't a subtitle but a title but straight out of compton i think that that kind of structure is probably going to last for a very long time as oh, well yeah and straight out of compton a really solid film yeah i uh, liked it quite a bit so you can't wait till straight out of compton xxl <laughs> straight out of compton double xl i will definitely go and see that's about the after well no it would be called straight out of compton aftermath yeah. but that's that's a whole nother uh, that's a whole nother thing okay so coming up next we've got the wilhelm award <coughs> it's a favorite guilty pleasure of the year honestly i just wanted to name an award after the Wilhelm scream. And the thing with the Wilhelm scream is it's totally unnecessary, never needs to be used in a film again, but it is as a guilty pleasure as a like winky tongue in cheek nod to, you know, all of the films that, that it was used in, in the, you know, in the old Westerns. And then in, in the seventies when it was sort of brought back and, and ever since. So I think there's really only one clear definitive final answer to this. And that's dangerous men. <laughs> Being the best, and I'm not sure that you would qualify as a guilty pleasure because I think it may be, it's become such a part of your person and uh-huh. your personality that you may, it's almost like a relative to you at this point in well, time. It, it, Hunter, it brings a tear to my eye that you would, you would 
place it in the coveted Wilhelm Award yes, spot. And so that would it's it, that like I said, I mean, I really don't think I, I'm curious to see what you say, because I really kind of think it, it clearly is dangerous men. I mean, uh-huh. what else could it be as far as guilty pleasure? OK, so I'm going to go actually with uh, Spectre for a reason that will become clear later. But uh, Spectre, because like I said, it's a it's a movie, you know, it's kind of in the middle of the, the James Bond movies. And it's like there are things I that I like a lot about it. But in spite of knowing that there are so many things that don't work, you know, it's one of those I I apologize for it. And I I am excited to see this movie again in spite of the fact that uh, – it was sort of all over the place. I think that Sam Mendes probably said all that he needed to say with Skyfall. Spectre would have been better had it been directed by a John S. Rad. <laughs> that would that would have made. Oh him man, a- John S. Rad's uh, entry into the James Bond franchise would be just insane. It would take it would take far too long to make though. Yeah, exactly. Well, particularly because he's passed away. So yeah. All right. The The next award is called the Armand White Award. And Chris, I think this is going to need a little bit of explanation. OK, so for those who are unfamiliar with Armand White, Armand White is a infamous contrarian, um, often will defend a movie that everyone else, you know, the public and critical consensus is it's terrible. Or he will just deride a movie that everyone thinks is amazing. I, I believe he was the original critic to write a bad review for The Dark Knight. And the thing about Armand White is he can defend the position that he takes. It's it's ridiculous and it gets off on non sequiturs and rabbit trails galore, but he's very passionate about it. And so that's sort of the movie that uh, most, you know, like you feel like you are in the opposite camp of everyone else. You either hated, but everyone else seemed to love and you don't understand or a movie that you loved and everyone else just derided terrific so my choice for this is probably there there wasn't really anything that i felt like i was on the complete opposite end of the spectrum so my choice may not do true honor to mm-hmm. armand white it's a tough year for it no though. yeah absolutely so i'm picking something that it seemed like everyone thought eh, that was okay you know the critical consensus mm-hmm. was a little bit on the mediocre side but i just thought it was spectacular was good dinosaur okay and as the time of this recording the Good Dinosaur is probably going to be, this is astounding, The Good Dinosaur is going to be the first picture in Pixar history to lose money. Really? It's going to be the least seen Pixar picture ever. I was unaware of this. No, absolutely. It's, I think it's only made about $100 million, and mm-hmm. so that's, you know, that's nothing to Pixar. So pretty astounding. I We didn't mention this during our review, but do you think that the reason that The Good Dinosaur just never really found an audience is because people have been dinosaured out and Pixared out? Because... Inside Out was very, very successful. Mm-hmm. Jurassic World was extremely successful. And then you had a picture that was Pixar and Dinosaurs, which seems like a no-brainer. And it, yet it, it just, does, but I feel like I didn't see nearly as much of it as I did like Inside Out leading up to it. Mm-hmm. Um, like it wasn't promoted as much? Yeah, yeah. So, well, then, well, it, it was... And, and that in combination with, this has been a really heavy back-end year of like a lot of stuff released in, you know, November and December and it could have could also just be that it got lost in the mix. Yeah, that that that's probably a good point. Is it's this was always the redheaded stepchild, and mm-hmm. picks are so anticipatory of finding Dory next year that they just wanted to put this here, yeah, see yeah. what it could do, and then be gone, be done with it. But it, it was dis- it wasn't as good as a Pixar dinosaur movie could have been. But I thought it was better than the culture at large gave okay. it credit for. So I'm going with Dangerous Men for my Armand White Award, and that's. Because, I mean, if you look at, I, I think the Metacritic score is something like 35 
or something like that. Clearly they're not getting it. Uh, They they don't. Well, and, and the reason that I went with it here instead of, uh, instead of my Wilhelm award is because I can defend this movie like on so many levels that I'm sure like no one else is going to agree with, like comparing it to French new wave and the way that, you know, you have this, uh, immigrant who is trying to interpret a, uh, American genre and doing just like a terrible job translating it. You know, that, that sort of thing uh, reminds me of something like breathless or it's, you know, it's a movie that I absolutely love. I've spoken about it ad nauseum on the show before. And, and so, you know, you know, my feelings about it, but it's, um, I, I'm not sure there are many people who adore this movie as much as I do. On the same level. Do you think, even though we're a very, very different culture now and our sense of humor is very uh, has changed from the 50s, do you think that Dangerous Men could potentially be a Plan 9 from outer space for the 90s, 2000s? It, it could. I think it needs to find that audience. And I think, you know, it... It definitely found some people when it, you know, when it played at Fantastic Fest and um, being, I think, uh, draft house films are sort of the perfect uh, distributor for this film. Um, I think it'll get the love that it needs, but uh, maybe not on a scale of something like Plan 9. Well, you know, time will tell. Um, I, I well, And the reason I bring up Plan 9 from outer space is because that's another picture that just watching throughout it, you just it's so slap together but at the same time you see the genuine affection that the filmmaker yeah. has for what he's doing i'm reminded of, of an aicn review of plan on for outer space where people said it's the worst movie ever and the reviewer said you know it's not because clearly ed wood had a lot of affection for what he's doing he he like said the average freddie prince jr comedy is mm-hmm. way worse because mm-hmm. it's just a cynical it's just cynical money grab. No cares, whereas yeah. dangerous men plan nine for outer space is clearly a human being who Loves what he's doing. Loves yeah. the act of film making. Yeah, I would agree with that. Okay, so this next uh, award is one that you came up with. Do you want to introduce this to us? Sure. It's uh, pretty straightforward. It's called the Didn't See That One Coming Award. And as the name implies, it's something that we weren't anticipating. And I think there are some really clear answers that we've in many ways already mentioned here. So, Chris, what movie, either its quality or its success, did you not see coming? So I'm actually doing some Catesian cheating here. All right. Um, so I have one movie from this year and then a couple others just from our experience of the year. Uh, so the movie from this year is Brooklyn, which I already spoke about. Terrible trailer. Did not expect this to uh, grip me in the way that it did. Did not expect it certainly to be on my you know top five of the year. Um, love Brooklyn. Second one is Tom Cruise, which uh, I love – Tom Cruise movies, but I hadn't really, you know, I had fallen out of love with Tom Cruise. I definitely fell back in love with him when we reviewed Mission Impossible. I went for, I don't even remember how many films straight, just watching Tom Cruise movies for, for a good solid couple weeks. And there wasn't a bad one in the bunch. Like there was, there was one that was like maybe mediocre, but he made it great. And then my final one is Predator. All right. <laughs> Terrific. So um, before we talk to Predator, you've said that you've fallen, refallen in love with Tom Cruise. Yeah. You have a couch right here with an eyesight. Are you prepared to jump on the couch and say, I love this man over and over again? You know, that's just not my style. <laughs> Maybe off mic. And my, then, my, my Thedens are uh, too high or low or whatever. Something the, like uh, that. Yeah. So uh, Predator, why, how, did, how is that on there? What? Uh, it's just a movie that I never thought I needed to see, mm-hmm. really. And um, it's, you know, it's not my favorite thing that i i saw this year but uh at the same time i really really like it really yeah. enjoyed it yeah absolutely so my didn't see that one coming were pictures from this year so i'm going to be gallagherian and follow the rules okay um the picture as far as quality wise is mad max fury road as we talked about uh, earlier 
It it always looks like it would be good, but it didn't look like it would be transcendently Oscar frontrunner good. It, it didn't look like the type of movie that you would have to chug two linen kugels. You as know, a result yeah, of its it's, it, yeah, it's one of those things. You, you, you never, I didn't see that one coming certainly. <laughs> but anyway, and so then the other one is Jurassic World. I was figuring Jurassic World would do well, mm-hmm. but as of this writing, it is the I believe the fourth highest grossing picture ever. Only like a. Uh, nose hair away from Titanic. And so, like I said, while while we figured it was going to do well, the Titanic, pun intended, the levels yeah. of success it has reached, uh, I quote, didn't see that one coming. I, I did not see that one coming either. That That's a really good pick. What we did see coming, however, is our final category. So, Chris, would you please introduce that for us? I will. This is the Silver Screen Silver Lining. And this is basically an award for a movie that we didn't really care for that much, but there was something in it that was uh, pretty good that got us through it. Uh, so, Hunter, what do you, what do you got here? Uh, we got another three parter here. So, the of first course. two, and you know, in Tibble Catesian fashion, these are not from this year, uh, the, but the, I saw them for the first time this year. I didn't really like Blue Velvet. It wasn't the movie I was anticipating it being. And I, you know, go back to that episode if you want to know what I thought about it. However, I did love Dennis Hopper's PBR scene which I cannot repeat on a family friendly show, but that was a, that was a good moment. And then I also didn't, I wasn't a huge fan of Ferris Bueller's day off, but Jeffrey Jones and that was magnificent. And then finally a picture that came out in 24, but we saw it in 2015 reviewed in 2015 was American sniper. It kind of fit. I mean, that just Mm -hmm. seems eons ago, but neither one of us really liked it, but Bradley Cooper in it was spectacular. Yeah, surprisingly so, so. Yeah, so he was definitely a silver screen, silver lining for that. Those are, those are all some pretty good picks. Uh, my silver screen, silver lining is the soundtrack of It Follows by Disasterpiece. The the soundtrack by Disasterpiece. It Follows is a movie that got a lot of praise like in the early bit of the year as you know a, a great rejuvenating sort of a horror movie. And it just didn't do much for me. Like um, from the start, it felt like it was a little... A little too much into its style. There are things that I liked about it, but um, overall, nah, just not a movie that I loved. But uh, the soundtrack was consistently great and and did a really good job of setting a tone, even when I felt like maybe the director was trying too hard on screen to also set a tone. Uh, that That's my award. I would say, you know, listen to the soundtrack. Don't see the movie. All right. Well, it wasn't all happy sunshine this year. There were some very, very serious losses. One really upset you. One really upset me. Mm -hmm. So for our in memoriam section, what would you uh, who would you like to commemorate? What would you like to commemorate? So I would like to commemorate the uh, wonderful movie blog, The Dissolve, which uh, just very suddenly shut its doors. They they made a post that said, that's it. We're hanging up our hats and going home. Uh, and it was the dissolve. It almost seems like an end of an era in a way for for movie blogging, because they were doing, you know, when so many movie sites are about the the news of the day of rumor mills and that sort of thing. They did. They did all that because they had to try to keep the lights on. But they also did these crazy like I think it was every other week they would do a featured uh, movie like an older film, which they would do all sorts of writing about. And, um, you know, these long pieces and the reviews were very, um, very in-depth, very, very well-written, very long pieces that you just don't get at a lot of movie sites. So, um, when they announced that they were, uh, they were closing down, it was a total gut punch. Um, and then also they, they had a great podcast that I, uh, listened to religiously that suddenly disappeared as well. But, and do you still have no idea what happened? 
Um, I mean, it was just, they ran out of money Mm -hmm. that it was as simple as that they were run by, um, they were basically the movie arm of pitchfork, uh, the, the music blog blog site, but, um, yeah, they just ran out of money. They couldn't, couldn't keep it going, but, uh, they're back together or several of them are back together on a biweekly podcast called the last picture show where they sort of do what they were doing with the movie of the week. Um, on the dissolve, they, they basically take a look at a new release and then an older release and how it relates to how the two relate to each other. And I, I have been listening to it. I think they're on, I don't know, four or five episodes or four or five, uh, features now. And, uh, it's pretty great. I would recommend that. All right. Well, there you go. And then I would like to commemorate the life of captain general Han Solo. (laughs) Um, and I'm not being ironic by including this. I mean, like I said earlier on in the show is it was my, my, I knew it was coming. I, I throughout the entire movie, but my heart was beating the entire time right before it happened. And so this is the loss of one of the pinnacle characters in American popular culture. Mm -hmm. Really? It's the character that made Harrison Ford a star, but it even transcends Harrison Ford. So his death in 2015 has, is a monumental moment. I would say in pop culture. So Han Solo, I don't really, I'm not sure where, when you were born, it was, uh, I think probably, uh, 30 before the battle of Yavin is Uh how they, is uh how they use times. So I'm not sure of your exact age, but, uh, RIP Captain Solo. Yes. You will be missed Captain Solo. All right, Chris. So we have paid honor to those we lost this year. We've also given out awards and named our best pictures of the year and our best discoveries. So 2015 is coming gone. Sum up the year for us, Chris. 2015 will be remembered as blank in film and popular culture. I I think 2015 will be remembered as a year for fantastic female roles and performances. Really, when I think back on the movies I've seen this year, uh, the women just blow the men out of the water as far as I'm for for the Oscar race, the Golden Globe race. I'm really interested to see how those things pan out uh, for female performances in both lead and supporting roles. Versus like the men, there aren't many that I like just am gung ho care about uh, them winning, but we've got Charlie Theron and Mad Max. We've got Lola Kirk and Mistress America, Saoirse Ronan in Brooklyn, Brie Larson in Room, um, the Duke of Burgundy, the entire cast, which is all female, and then uh, Daisy Ridley in The Force Awakens. Um, and, oh, and of course, uh, Rebecca Ferguson in Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation. We'll see. There you go. So really, there's a lot of fine female performances. The only male who could really compete with that, who's really been doing his end of the bargain, is John Cena in yeah. his twin pictures. Yeah, he's he's the, I mean, the the runaway male performance for me this year. Yeah, it's really the only thing to debate is whether he's going to be nominated for Best Actor or Supporting Actor. Maybe both. No. Definitely not. Yeah. But that, that, that's a sad shame. Well, in my opinion, 2015 will, will be remembered as the year Hollywood made a comeback in film and popular culture. Because for a number of years, the Oscar frontrunners, the awards frontrunners have been either independent pictures or pictures from the studio's independent wings. Mm-hmm. And now it looks like a lot of our frontrunners, Star Wars, uh, Mad Max, The Martian, Creed, etc., that these are actually coming from the studios, not their independent divisions. Mm-hmm. The best-reviewed pictures of this year are mainstream blockbusters, and that's especially interesting considering coming off of 2014. 2014, as far as box office receipts, was one of the worst ever. Um, American Sniper was the highest grossing at like 300, and Star Wars made more than that in five days. Um, Jurassic World made more than that in seven days, something like that. So this indicates that 
good news, people are seeing movies again. People are going out to the theater. I think after 2014, people were a little bit worried that because of Netflix, because of on-demand entertainment, et cetera, et cetera, people just weren't going to the movies anymore. And 2015 has indicated, no, that is resoundingly not the case. People are not only going to movies, but they're really enjoying them. And Hollywood's making good mainstream pictures. At least they did this last year. But at the same time, Hunter, I would say like, I can't think of a year in recent memory that had as many just great treasures of, of films as, as this. Like uh, it was, it was a little hard to put my list together this mm-hmm. year. Um, I do have one uh, runner up alternative that I, I would like to throw out here. It could also be remembered as the year Donald Gleason got a better agent because he's been everywhere in film this year. Yeah. So he, he was in Ex Machina, Brooklyn, Star Wars, Force Awakens in the Revenant. Well, um, and actually to that point, it could also be remembered as the year of nostalgia. Cause when you think about it, you know, you've got dress world. We talked about star Wars, like we talked about, and then the front runner for presidential nomination is Donald Trump. So, and, and then Hillary Clinton. So everything that's old is new again in 2015. I believe you mean home alone Two lost New York's very own Donald Trump. I actually didn't notice that. Yeah. I had never noticed that seeing that picture growing up. And then I saw the gift and that, Oh my gosh, that's, that's, Donald yeah, Trump. He was absolutely. also uh, he was also Waldo's dad in The Little Rascals. But we're not <laughs> we're not going to discuss Donald Trump's film career. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, that's how Chris and I will remember 2015. We want to know how you will remember 2015. Please tell us at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around. We'll be back after the break to discuss our 2016 New Year's resolutions. Chris, let old acquaintance be forgot and never come to mind. What are your resolutions in film for 2016? Okay, I've got a couple. Uh, The first one is read more, which seems kind of counterintuitive for film. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's several books that uh, I have around that I've either started or uh, just purchased with the intention of starting and and haven't finished. So uh, like when the shooting stops, the cutting begins, which is a... uh, a book just about editing that, that I have purchased, but never, you know, even thumbed through. Um, and, and then speaking about editing, uh, in the blink of an eye, the Walter Murch book I've read, I don't know, a half dozen times, but I'm perpetually reading it and, and would like to, you know, give it another whirl, add an, add a few more earmarks to it this year. Mm-hmm. Some men study the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> I, I study Walter Murch. No, that's, that's very, very true. And then my other resolution is a few challenges for myself. So this past year, um, I did, you know, I did a deep dive into Tom Cruise. I did a really deep dive into James Bond movies. And so I was thinking, you know, maybe, maybe I need to do that with specific filmmakers this year. And so I have three that I would like to like to get into. 
Um, I don't know if I can make it through all of them, particularly the last one, but I'll, I'll try. Um, the first is John Cassavetes. I've seen a lot of his films. He doesn't have many that he's directed. Um, so I think that'll be that that's pretty simple to do, but I'd like to, you know, see the ones I haven't and then maybe go back to the ones that I have and then kind of get a retrospective. Uh, Martin Scorsese, there's a handful of pictures around, you know, New York, New York and, uh, Kunden and, you know, some of those that, um, just, you know, have slipped through the cracks for mm-hmm. me. I've, I've seen, I would say a majority of them, but miss some. And then the big one, Hitchcock. Um, and I don't even know how to approach this one because he's made so many films. Um, I might have to narrow it down to only his American productions or something like that to really, well, make and, and as I said earlier, I'm reading, currently reading his biography and there's a lot of pictures that are just his silent pictures, especially that are just not Hitchcockian in mm-hmm. the least. He's made movies about a boxer, for instance, a, yeah, yeah. you know, kind of a, pre-Rocky Rocky story. So uh, good luck with that. I don't know where you're going to find a lot of those, but yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. That's definitely the one that's like the pie in the sky sort of a challenge for myself, but Mm -hmm. we'll see what happens. Well, mine, my resolution is a little bit more broad. I know that uh, all the people who give you resolutions to say, be as specific as possible. Mine is kind of the lose weight as far as generalities are concerned. Um, It's basically, I'm going to finally subscribe to Hulu Oh, and just okay. and be better about Criterion Collection because my approach has usually been is I will skim the surface. I will see one film from each director that I like, and then if I really like them, then I'll take the the deep dive, as you uh-huh. put it. And I've only really done that with uh, Akira Kurosawa and Igmar Bergman. And I, I'm not sure I'm going to do a deep dive, but at the very least, I'm going to skim more surfaces, mm-hmm. as it were, and and make a bigger dent in my criterion collection need to see list. So that's my big resolution this that's year. That's good. That's a really good resolution. Yeah. And for 10 bucks a month, I mean, how can, you know, well, I think it's it, only it, eight if you, if you don't do commercial free. So even, even a better deal. Yeah. How about that? So that's my resolution. Okay. Well, I wish you luck in that. And uh, I hope to see some recommendations coming down the line that I've actually heard of next year. Uh, or this year, I suppose. You know, it's one of those things. This show kind of has a running theme, and r- the running theme is obscure recommendations. Uh-huh. So I, I kind of, it's what my audience demands. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it sounds like obscure recommendations will be an anti-resolution for you in 2016. Or you could say that I've just resolved to never change. Okay, which that's, is yeah, that's very hunter. That, that's good as well. And that's a wrap for 2015 of War Starts at Midnight. Absolutely. Thank you very much for sticking with us. Check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes, weekly movie recommendations, and more. And you can always say hi to Hunter on Facebook or me on Twitter at WSAMPod. And if you've made it this far into the credits, let's face it, you should probably subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, write us a nice little review. It'll help us reach new listeners and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who has just been hate listening through these credits, well, tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. On the other hand, if you're a narcissist, you can leave us a voicemail and we'll see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. Shout out to Generationals for this week's music. Find more at generationals.com. Join us in another fortnight as we discuss the eighth film from Quentin Tarantino, The Hateful Eight. Thanks for listening, folks. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.